Back in 2002, Karen Hostetler and her friend Valerie Spanos wanted to open a gift shop in their little Wyoming hometown, the sort of place that sold locally made products to tourists. I have a good friend. We say, well, maybe we should have a hobby now that our kids are in school. And we both thought it would be fun to have something that had something to do with wool, just because of where we live. And we live in Buffalo, Wyoming. The history of the Basque Shepherd is very strong here. There's sheep all over. But Karen and her friend ran into a problem. Even though they lived in the heart of Wyoming's sheep country, wool was hard to find. In a state that had over half a million sheep at the time, a state that produced over three and a half million pounds of wool that year, it was hard to find a rancher who would sell it to them. Why was it so hard to buy Wyoming wool in Wyoming? In this episode, I travel to northern Wyoming to solve that mystery. Where was all that wool going? And how did one housewife searching for a hobby bring that wool back and end up becoming a central player in the revitalization of a dying American industry? You're listening to Fiber Nation: Tales of Textiles, Craft, and Culture. I'm your host, Allison Korleski. It is so good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you. They let me in through the back, so I hope that that's okay. That's great. All right. So it smells like a wool mill in here. Walk into a wool mill, and the first things that hit you are the noise and the smell. The noise is like any factory: bangs, whirring, random whistles. The smell, though, the smell clobbers you like a two by four wrapped in a wet towel. It's the musky barnyard aroma of tens of thousands of pounds of wool. And along with the scents of toast and fresh-cut grass, I think it's the best smell in the world. Last August, I drove north to Buffalo, Wyoming, to meet with Karen Hostetler, the owner of the Mountain Meadow Wool Mill. Buffalo is near the Bighorn Mountains, about 60 miles south of the Montana border. My five-hour drive from Fort Collins, Colorado, took me through a landscape that's both beautiful and desolate—rocky sweeps of nothing. Crisscrossed with green river bottoms full of cottonwoods, it was monsoon season, and several heavy storms pelted the car with dime-sized hail. Wyoming is a state that can make you feel very small. Buffalo itself is a small town, and the Mountain Meadow Wool Mill lies on its eastern edge. It's a group of connected barn-like buildings where raw wool gets transformed from smelly 500-pound bales into cones and skeins of soft merino yarn. Today, the mill spins around thirty thousand pounds of wool each year, and that sounds like a lot. But compared to the rest of the global wool industry, Mountain Meadow is a proverbial needle in a haystack. Eighteen years ago, when Karen and Valerie hatched their original plan to open a gift shop, they knew they wanted to buy wool, Wyoming wool, for the products there. But the behemoth of globalized commerce was getting in their way, gobbling up every bit of the state's supply. Wyoming's reputation may be hardy and tough; its sheep and ranchers certainly are. But the wool they produce is exceptionally soft and fine. Wyoming ranchers raise merino sheep, the gold standard when it comes to wool, and they raise other breeds too, like Rambouillet and Cormo, with fleece that's almost as fine. Forget itchy and scratchy. This stuff is next to the skin soft. 
Merino fleece, it's only about 19 to 20 microns in diameter. Now, a micron is one millionth of a meter, and that measurement meant nothing to me when I first came across it. But on the size spectrum, bacteria can be three microns and human hair 75. In other words, that stuff on our head is almost five times coarser than the wool on a sheep's back. That rugged landscape I drove through, that's part of the reason Wyoming wool is among the best in the world. It seems counterintuitive, but Karen pointed out that the harsher the conditions, the softer the wool. Yes, so that's why in the Rocky Mountain West, and that goes for Montana or Colorado, Wyoming, you have the harsh winters, you have dry, you know, you're, it's just not like on a lush grassland. So their fiber actually will get coarser if you take that same sheep and you put it down on the nice grassy plains of Ohio. And so as a raw material, Wyoming wool is sought after around the globe. The finest, most expensive suits are made with wool from places like Wyoming. But once the wool is sold, it's swept up into the global wool market, mixed with wool from other regions, and it becomes impossible to trace. The system's pretty simple, and it was in place for many, many years. The wool buyer, the go-between between the, the big mill or the factory, they say, I need this many pounds of wool this year. They tell the wool buyer what kind they want, and the wool buyer goes ranch to ranch and buys the wool. Wool from multiple ranches and multiple buyers gets sorted by micron size and staple length. That's how long the individual fibers are. Then the sorted batches get processed together at giant mills on a scale that I found hard to comprehend. One of the largest mills in the U.S., Chargers, processes 6.6 million pounds of wool a year from almost 2 million sheep. They can do half of Mountain Meadows' annual output in a single day. And when quantities that large get blended, you lose track. That's why Karen and Valerie were having such a hard time finding the local stuff. You know, the ranchers never really saw it again. Nobody really knew where it went. You couldn't find Wyoming wool. Eventually, Karen found a rancher willing to sell a small quantity of wool directly to them. But then they ran into a new problem. There was no wool mill. There was none in Wyoming. There was none in Montana. There was none for miles and miles around. In one of the sheepiest places on earth, there was no place to process, clean, and spin their wool into yarn. So we bought a whole bale of wool from a rancher, 500 pounds. I shoved it in the back of my little station wagon. I don't remember what it was. I did it in the station wagon. I don't really remember how we did it, but it filled it up. And then we headed to Canada. That was the closest mill that we could find us. That 500-pound bale of wool that Karen and her friend managed to buy, it was just a tiny scrap. Many ranchers won't sell in such small quantities like that. That small mill in Canada spun it into yarn for them. They ended up selling the yarn at craft shows and the like. Their idea of a gift shop with wool toys and souvenirs it never really materialized. But their experience at that mill, seeing how the wool turned into yarn and talking to the people who worked there... That was an epiphany for them. We met with all the mill workers who all looked like they were having just a wonderful time. And we fell in love with the mill. And that's when it was, why can't we do that closer to the ranch? And was this, what year was this? That was 2002. So Karen and Valerie, who worked at Mountain Meadow until 2015, changed direction. Rather than just open a shop and sell things made from local wool, they wanted to keep Wyoming wool in Wyoming, period and turn it into things there. They wanted Wyoming wool to become a thing, a sort of brand, just like French champagne or true Parmesan cheese. 
If wine has a terroir, an identity based on the landscape that produces it, so does wool. And they knew, anyone in Wyoming knew, that ranchers were struggling. Maybe opening a mill could be a win-win for everyone involved. So what do you do when your plans change and suddenly become a lot bigger and more ambitious and need a much larger investment? If you don't have a trust fund or a private equity capital, you start writing a grant. Suddenly somebody popped into our world who had written a grant to the USDA, and they said, you should write one. So we did. It was a little grant. I think it was $5,000. Grants are like nesting boxes, but in reverse. That first grant was just a tiny step to study if the project was even worth doing. The two women would need a much larger grant to actually make things happen. And that time around, the competition was fierce. They went to a sort of grant-writing camp. And we were just felt like we were little hicks there. There was NASA and the National Science Foundation, and all of those agencies had their grant writers. And people were walking around with little ribbons of all the grants they had written. And they would ask us, what do you want to write a grant on? And we said, we want to wash wool. Anyway, I think they all got charmed by us. We were the focus of dinner conversation. <laughs> Over the next four or five years, Karen and Valerie would work together, often sitting at one of their kitchen tables, feeding their kids pizza and grilled cheese sandwiches, while they wrote up one grant proposal after another. And in that time, they would secure almost $400,000 in grants, first to learn all they could about the wool business and running a mill, then to bring that knowledge back to Wyoming, set up a mill, and make it work. Aside from funding a project, grant money can make things easier in an unexpected way. Because when people know you have a lot of money and can get a lot of money, they start to take you seriously. People who blew you off when you were just two ladies with kind of a kooky idea suddenly want to talk to you. I don't know what they thought we were doing, but it gave us legitimacy. And that included the very people they needed on their side, ranchers and the Wyoming Wool Growers Association. You see... The wool ranchers had been fighting, and losing, an uphill battle for decades. Both the U.S. wool market and the textile industry in general had declined steadily since World War II. Synthetic, easy-care fabrics like nylon and polyester pushed wool out of favor. Cheaper, overseas labor led to the closing of most textile mills. Some states, like Georgia and the Carolinas, saw 95% of their textile mills close by the 1990s. Most wool today comes from Australia and New Zealand. The two countries are the OPEC of wool, setting prices and controlling the global market. Like OPEC, Australia maintains vast reserves, and when it holds or releases those reserves, it affects everything from the cost of your sweater to whether a Wyoming sheep rancher can stay afloat. Last year we were paying $5 a pound for some of those premium wool. This year, the price is now again plummeting. The two women's plan now went way beyond, hey, it'd be cool to make some yarn. They wanted to offer a sustainable plan for Wyoming ranchers, including paying above market prices when necessary. We usually look at the global market. We usually look at the Australian price. That's what all wool prices are set on. And when it's high, we'll match it. And when it's low, we have a level we don't go below. They wanted to keep ranchers in business, keep the wool in Wyoming, and develop a whole brand based on regional identity and quality. So, back to the Wyoming Wool Growers Association. They were willing to listen, but that doesn't mean that the first meeting went well. Grant writing skills aside, 
Karen and her partner were unknown and didn't carry much clout with some of the senior members. We hadn't started the mill. We went to the wool growers meeting. And at that time, um, no one really knew about us. We weren't members of the wool growers. We hadn't been in all the fiber guilds. I want you to imagine what happened next. Karen has just finished her presentation and is facing her audience, a room full of sheep ranchers, all men. One man, one of the leaders, stood up to speak. We'll hear what he had to say after this short break. Getting back to Karen's presentation at the Wyoming Wool Growers Association. Karen's a small woman, and she favors floral skirts and neat jackets and comfortable sandals. Her hair is cut in a swingy bob, and it reflects the light in the meeting room. She looks a little like an associate professor or maybe a hip librarian. And I know that's a total cliche, but Karen looks great every time we meet, and I've always wanted to be a librarian, so I feel okay describing her this way. She's standing there in front of a group of sheep ranchers. If you do a Google image search for sheep rancher, you will see big, strong men with weathered faces and work roughened hands. They wear Carhartt jackets and hats, heavy boots, and rawhide gloves. And yes, that's also a cliche, but it's true nonetheless. The leader of these men was Angus McCall, who's a figurehead among Wyoming wool growers. To this day, he runs a wool testing lab that helps set standards for the entire U.S. industry. And Angus was not swayed by their pitch. He stood up, walked up to Karen, and jabbed a calloused finger at her. And he said, you will fail. This will not work. You will fail. Karen was speechless. But then there was a shift in the room. Some of the ranchers we had talked with got up. And I can remember Peter John Camino saying, if this doesn't work, you tell me what will. Because we're fading away. That man, Peter John Camino, was not just talking about a business. His entire culture was disappearing. We need to wander off for a second and do a little bit of wool gathering. The Spanish first introduced sheep into the Americas in 1493, but those were coarse wool churros found predominantly in Mexico in the southwest U.S. If you've seen a traditional Navajo rug, a real one, you've seen churro wool. Merino sheep, though, they came much later, around 1808. And they didn't reach Wyoming until several decades after that. Researching this episode, I was surprised to learn that sheep raising in the West really isn't all that old, maybe dating back to the mid or late 1800s. This was at least in part because raising sheep was not for the faint of heart. There were fierce and sometimes deadly competition with cattle ranchers, predators, blizzards, and summer storms, the random but not unheard of possibility of falling off a mountain, Sheep graze in those mountains for much of the year and need to be on the move constantly. Who on earth could handle such rough, dangerous, and ultimately lonely work? Uh, in the mountains, they, they'd go up in, in June and come back in September or October, three four, three, four months. Once a year when they shipped the lambs and stuff, they got to come to town for about a week's vacation in town. But that was the only social event. I mean, they were pretty much alone the rest of the time. That's Jim Yerman, who now works at Mountain Meadow. He's talking about a group of immigrants known as the Basque, who had been shepherds for generations in the mountainous area between France and Spain. Jim's a charming fellow, tall and lanky. 
He had on a zippered fleece jacket and jeans when I spoke with him, and he looked like any regular guy you'd run into at Home Depot. But he's also kind of a piece of living history. When he talks about his father, you're back in a time of Model T Fords and canvas sheep wagons. My dad, he was French Basque, and uh, back when he was about 25 years old, America was a big place to go and, and make top wages and, and make a lot of money. So he left home at that early age and uh, come over on a ship, and then he took a train to Claremont, Wyoming. He went to work for another older bass that was here already, John Esponda. It it was a a different lifestyle. I mean, when he got in Claremont, John Esponda picked him up, and they went out, clear out in the middle of the hills. And they got as far as the pickup could go, and they told him, you see that hill way over there in the south? It was probably 10 miles away. He said, when you walk, he had a bedroll, and he said, you walk to that hill, and when you get on top of the hill, you'll be able to see a sheep wagon way off in the distance, and your horse and sheep wagon will be there. He was months before he ever got to go back to town again. Jim has a lot of stories about his father, who didn't speak English or understand American currency for quite a while. Most of what he remembers from his father's stories, though, is the crushing loneliness of it all. Camp tenders would travel from one camp to another, checking on the men and bringing in fresh food and supplies and so forth. But other than that, it was months up in the mountains, with only sheep, a horse, and a dog for company. Uh, Really lonely. Uh, He said that oftentimes he'd cry like a baby because what, what what had he done? You know, he'd left all that, his family and stuff, to come out here. In return for their hard work and isolation, the Basque wanted to be paid not in cash, but in sheep. That allowed them to build flocks of their own and eventually pick up land so they could bring in more Basque, other relatives, to help them run their own ranches. As lonely as they may have been in the mountains, lower down, the Basque were building a strong community. To this day, Basque festivals occur throughout the Mountain West, including Buffalo, Wyoming. And that brings us back to Peter Camino, the rancher who came to Karen's defense. He descended from those same Basque shepherds, just like Jim's father, and he still speaks the language. After that meeting, Peter went a step further and became Mountain Meadows' first business partner in 2007. Here's Karen again. He brought in 10,000 pounds of wool, and that was a lot. You know, you asked me before if it was hard to to get into the, you know, making this a positive thing with the ranchers. He was very positive with it. He was convinced if they didn't do something different, we were going to lose that um, lifestyle in this area. So many of them had already quit sheep ranching. Before long, other ranchers joined Camino, taking a leap of faith. Those ranchers that were willing to try the risk, they basically donated the wolf to us for the first four years. They really weren't paid for that wool until four years later. The mill started with three employees, salvaged equipment, and a sleep-depriving load of debt because their grant money was largely spent by that point. Based on their business plan, they had to spin around 10,000 pounds that first year just to be viable. And there were some early disasters. 
Their machines turned out to be designed for a completely different kind of wool, and it was like trying to sew with a jackhammer. I remember standing there at the spinner, and I was up to my thighs in broken strings and fiber and yarn. She made frantic calls to the guy who supplied their machinery, and eventually, after a lot of tinkering, they ended up with a product they could sell, and a marketing idea that defines them to this day. Here's what they did differently. Unlike the giant mills we talked about, the ones that blend and process tens of thousands of pounds a day, Mountain Meadow kept its wool in separate batches. All wool, no matter how good it is overall, varies in quality. Higher quality grades bring higher prices per pound. Mountain Meadow needed to track the quantities of different grades from each ranch to pay their ranchers properly. It was a total pain, but Karen turned this business necessity into a selling point. We knew that ranch had 21 micron wool. It was beautiful Rambouillet. We didn't want to mix it with anybody else. So we started tracing the wool through the whole system. Well, fast forwarded a few years, and suddenly the consumer wants that. It became, oh, this is suddenly, this is a connection between the consumer and the rancher. And this is a good thing. We're going to keep doing that. In 2020, it's easy to take that kind of revolutionary thinking for granted. These days, we like to know where our stuff comes from. We like to boast about buying fair trade coffee and eating locally sourced produce. Why should wool be any different? If you knit, you know that this is totally a thing. Certain yarn brands have long emphasized that their wool is American grown or American spun or breed specific. Karen wanted to go one better offering yarns from specific ranches that met some very high-quality standards. Buy yarn spun from Mountain Meadow, and the tag mentions the ranch it's from, often with a photo and brief history. Karen was creating a one-to-one relationship between customers and ranchers. She was also creating a lot of yarn. At the time of this podcast, Mountain Meadow is one of only five full-service mills in the U.S., meaning it handles wool all the way from sheep to skein to machine-knit products like socks and hats. It's the only mill of its kind in the American West. For a fiber nerd like me, seeing it, this was totally my happy place. I asked Karen to walk me through the mill, starting with a room filled with bales of wool that towered over us. So I'm looking at, we were just looking at bales of fleece there, and now we're looking at bales of fleece here. What's the difference? It's just a storage issue. (laughs) We have probably 30,000 pounds of wool in here right now. (laughs) All the wool we're going to need for the whole year, and it's everywhere. Each spring during shearing season, mills buy all the wool they need for the year. Mountain Meadow uses the professional wool buyers you heard about earlier, but they prefer to work directly with the wool growers themselves as much as they can. We make sure we talk to the ranch. What, how much do you want to um, put into our producer program this year? Is it going to be 1,000 pounds or you know, 500 pounds or 5,000 pounds? And then most of the time we try to get to the shearings. If we're there, we can kind of make sure that we're getting... Um, those premium ones are going into our bales. <laughs> um, and it's also just good connections. You know, we're making those connections with the ranchers. Raw wool gets baled into 500-pound sacks. They look like squat, dirty refrigerators. And I was surprised to learn that the biggest obstacle a mill faces is not spinning wool, but washing it. Fresh off the sheep, wool is filthy. Not only are there bits and clumps of what we'll call organic matter— 
but wool itself is full of lanolin, wool wax, and other sticky substances that need to be removed before you can spin it. Those 500-pound bales, half of each bale, 250 pounds, is nothing but grease and dirt. Back when the mill first opened, they had to wash their wool in a washing machine. And as you can probably imagine, that was a nightmare. Today, there's an entire production line dedicated to scouring the wool clean. Karen brought me into a room where machines were whirring through the process. Our scouring line will do about 500 to 600 pounds a day, and it's five tanks. Um, There's a soaking tank, two hot soapy washes, and then two rinses. First, machines fluff up the dirty wool. They call this opening up a bale, knocking off loose dirt and plant matter. Then the actual washing starts. A conveyor belt pushes wool into the soaking tank, and the series of evil-looking eight-inch-long spikes grab the fiber and rake it through the water. Like Karen mentioned, to get the grease and gunk off, it takes two separate washes in hot, soapy water. She took me down the line, following the wool from tank to tank. By the end, the water was dark gray, thick, and kind of clumpy-looking. Even for me, the smell was a lot. So it takes about, for us, it takes two gallons of water per pound of wool. When we started, it took eight gallons of water per pound of wool. And Wyoming is essentially desert. In the beginning, they were using 180,000 gallons of water per year, and that's just not sustainable. Even the 60,000 gallons they use these days is a lot. But the mill now recycles much of that water and is planning on a treatment tank for wastewater as well. That clumpy-looking stew from the rinsing line, it's going to get a hefty dose of microbes added to it. Those microbes digest the grease, creates a sludge, and then that that is all composted outside. Um, And then we have a vertical flow wetlands where the water's trickled through. So are you saying that the water then goes through the soil and that's kind of what purifies it? Yeah, it's a vertical flow wetland, so sand and rock and plants and that's all cleaning the water, then that water should be able to be used right back into the system when we're um, ready to wash again. And I found this gross and fascinating and ingenious. That greasy waste creates a wetland, letting you filter water, wash more wool, and grow plants at the same time. Once clean, the wet wool gets fluffed in a dryer. Belts feed the dry wool through a series of spikes and other pokey-looking machines, and they organize the fibers into precise forms. Combing wool aligns all the fibers in the same direction, and that makes yarn that's smooth and straight and strong. Carding wool, on the other hand, jumbles the fibers together every which way, and that makes yarn that's fluffy and soft and full of tiny air pockets that keep you extra warm. Whether it's combed or carded, the prepared fiber is then drafted, And that's a process that pulls the fibers into what looks like fluffy featherweight ropes. It's this halfway point between raw wool and finished product. And at this point, I am just dying to see that final step where the magic happens and you get yarn. Except they need to test a machine first. Hi. We're waiting for some machines to start running. (laughs) Get those machines going. (laughs) Is this your dog? This is um, Goldie. She's our mill dog. Oh. Gary, our plant manager, she's been he with was us. Running for... a test. I, don't know if he... I am probably the only person to drive five hours up through most of Wyoming just to visit a wool mill, and I didn't get to see any yarn being spun. I feel a little like Charlie Brown with the football. But then, 
I remind myself that Karen had to wait and work five years before seeing any yarn. Years of finding funding, convincing naysayers, and piecing together a business one step at a time. All before she got to see those machines were into action. That things didn't come together all at once in my tour? It seems kind of appropriate for the story. And honestly, it was fine, because I saw so much more than a mill that day. I saw a woman who took a vague notion of a gift shop, a housewife's hobby, and turn it into something that's daring to disrupt the Wyoming wool economy. Karen and I end up in a large room full of decrepit machinery. It's all from a mill that closed long ago, and Karen hoped they could salvage some of the equipment for use at Mountain Meadow. Yeah, this is kind of the state of the textile industry in the United States. A lot of old, outdated, in a lot of warehouses and abandoned factories. My husband wonders why we're still here. You know, we both put loans into the mill. You know, we kind of scratched our way through. I told him that debt will keep us in retirement someday. But we just didn't fit the mold of most mills. It, it was an idea whose time was right. It was a fitting end to the tour, listening to Karen talk about the obstacles she's overcome and continues to face because it's still a struggle. But also how she still believes that she can pick up pieces of the past, scrub them clean, and turn them into her future. Thanks so much for listening to Fiber Nation. You can find more information about today's episode on our show notes page. Just look for the link in the episode description. If you haven't already subscribed, please find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you like what you hear, please take time to leave a review. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Allison Korleski, and Ron Doyle. Ron edited and mixed this episode, and our executive producer of podcast is Jared Mayer.